So today we're looking at the story of Jonah. What is the first thing that comes to mind when I mention Jonah? Jonah and the whale. We all know the story of Jonah and the whale. You will find a beautifully illustrated version of this story in every children's Bible, except it's got very little to do with a whale. It doesn't even say whale, it says huge fish. We just assume that it's a whale. Only three sentences even mention the fish. And yet we get caught up on absurd questions like, oh, what kind of fish was it? It must have been a whale. What kind of whale? Uh, how could Jonah survive three days inside of this fish? We spend so much th time thinking about what was going on inside of the fish that we fail to see what was going on inside of Jonah. Uh, this story is about all kinds of things, but mainly it's about God's mercy and our hard-heartedness. But before we get to the story itself, we need to understand what kind of a story it is. There are 66 books in the Bible, 39 of them in the Old Testament, and they are not all the same kind of thing. There's history, lists, poetry, letters, parables, and so on. When it comes to the book of Jonah, it's perfectly legitimate to ask, is this an actual historical account or is it some kind of parable? Jesus taught in parables. Parables are true. That is to say they express truth, but they're not literally true. And if Jesus taught in parables, we shouldn't be surprised to find a parable in the Old Testament. It is, after all, God's word. Personally, I think that the book of Jonah is written in the style of a parable, but actually that doesn't alter the message nor does it alter the importance of the message. So why do I think this is a parable? Well, firstly, when we read Jonah, it's obvious that we're reading something very different to what we find in the other books of the Minor Prophets. Verse 1 says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, which is exactly how we'd expect a prophetic book to begin. But instead of reading what the Lord said through Jonah, we find ourselves reading a book about Jonah. So straight away, this is very different. And then everything in the book is larger than life. Everything's huge. The storm is huge. The fish is huge. The city is huge. It says it would take uh, three days to walk across this city. That would make it at least 70 kilometers across. The ancient city of Nineveh was enormous for its day. Uh, archaeologists tell us that it was 11 kilometers in circumference, 11 kilometers around. Uh, but that would only take about a day to walk across. But everything is larger than life. It's almost as if this is written in a cartoon or comic book style. And the book isn't rooted in history in the same way that other prophetic books are. Uh, of course, Nineveh is a real place. What's more, Jonah is a real historic person. Uh, he appears briefly in 2 Kings uh, chapter 14. But I believe that Jonah has been placed in this story as a kind of satire. Uh, satire is when we put well-known people in ridiculous situations to make a point, uh, often to highlight their flaws and their failings. Uh, you would have seen a lot of satire directed at Donald Trump and Scott Morrison, uh, Boris Johnson, Emmanuel Macron. These people are prime targets for satire. So we understand what that is. Uh, but what you don't get it is the historical references that you find in other prophetic books. For example, during the reign of such and such a king, this is what happened. When you read a sentence like that, it enables you to pinpoint what you're reading and place it in a, in a very specific uh, time in the history. 
Uh, we don't get that in Jonah. The king of Assyria is referred to rather unusually as the king of Nineveh. He's not even given a name. So you don't have these uh, historical references. And that's another clue that we might be reading something a bit different. Another thing that makes this look like a parable is the fact that it's really funny. Did you know that the Bible includes comedy? Uh, a lot of the things that Jesus said were really quite funny, but it's not always easy to spot. Have you ever heard someone trying to describe a hilarious situation that they were in, but it's not all that funny? And everyone sat there, deadpan faces, tumbleweed rolls across in the background, and the person telling the story gradually runs out of steam until in the end they say, well, perhaps you had to be there. It happens to me all the time. Comedy doesn't always travel well. And if a joke is retold in a different culture thousands of years later, it probably won't be that funny. Do you think that in thousands of years time, they'll be laughing at the hilarious memes that you post on Facebook? Probably not. So there's humour in the Bible, but it's not going to have you rolling around clutching your sides. But it is there. And Jonah is a good example of this. Um, not only is everything in the story larger than life, but it's back to front as the last thing that you would expect. And we'll pick up on that uh, later on when we get to the story itself. So uh, the book of Jonah is probably a parable and quite a funny one at that. Uh, but that doesn't detract from the message because this is God's word. This is God speaking to his people. This is God speaking to us. So now let's take a closer look at the story. And then, of course, we can see uh, perhaps what the meaning of this story is. What is God trying to say to us? So God sends Jonah to Nineveh uh, to condemn the wickedness of this great city. Nineveh was at the heart of the Assyrian Empire, which was the most brutal, violent and oppressive empire of the ancient world. And that really is saying something. When the Assyrians captured a city, they would literally skin people alive. They would decapitate the leaders of the city and they'd pile up their heads in a nice little pyramid outside the city gates. They were brutal. It was a really inhumane society. If anyone was deserving of God's judgment, deserving a lightning bolt or two, it was the Assyrians. But Jonah runs away. God sent him to Nineveh, but he gets on a boat to Tarshish, which is in the complete opposite direction, a city on the extreme limit of the known world. And yes, the Assyrians were pretty scary. But since when do God's prophets actually run away from God? It's ludicrous. So Jonah's on this ship and there's a huge storm. Jonah himself is sleeping below deck. But the sailors seem to recognise God's hand in this storm. And the captain goes down to speak to Jonah. He knows that he's a prophet. And he says, why aren't you praying to your God? Maybe he can save us. And then the sailors cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity and the lot falls on Jonah. So the sailors approach Jonah. They say, who are you? Where are you from? What have you done to cause this? Uh, but they already know because Jonah has told them that he's running away from God. And as the storm gets worse, they ask Jonah, what should we do to you to calm the sea down for us? And Jonah says, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Jonah is so stubborn that he would rather die than take God's message to Nineveh. But these rough, pagan, supposedly immoral sailors, sailors are very reluctant to throw Jonah overboard. 
Uh, instead, they start rowing uh, for shore as hard as they can. But after a while, it's just hopeless. And they cry out to the Lord. They cry out to the God of Israel. They say, please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. And then as a last resort, they throw Jonah overboard. The sea becomes calm. And in verse 16, it says, at this, the men greatly feared the Lord and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. So you have this dramatic contrast between a Jewish prophet who rebels against God and a group of pagan sailors who cry out to God in their time of need. And to all intents and purposes, it looks like they actually converted. So Jonah gets swallowed by a huge fish and in the belly of the fish, he does some praying. He's not really repentant, uh, but he does seem grateful that God has saved him. And the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Again, quite a comical image whereupon Jonah does go to Nineveh and he walks about a day's journey into the city where he preaches his five word sermon. It's, it's eight words in English, but only five in Hebrew. And it goes something like this. He says, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's it. That's his gospel presentation. Uh, and again, there's comedy in this because he is technically doing what God has told him to do, but he's doing the bare minimum. It's as if he really doesn't want the Ninevites to hear this message. But amazingly, it works. The people believe God. And when his message reached the king, he took off his royal robes. He uh, put on sackcloth and he sat down in the dust. And that was a sign of repentance. And he declares a feast, not just for the people. Uh, sorry, a fast. He declares a fast, not just for the people, uh, but also for the animals. Uh, and everyone's got to wear sackcloth, not just the people, but the animals too. This is hilarious. Jonah preaches the lamest sermon in the whole of scripture. And it results in even the animals repenting. No other prophet uh, has this immediate response to their message. And verse, uh, or rather uh, chapter 3, verse 10 says this. Uh, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But Jonah was furious. This is what he feared would happen, that God would have compassion on Nineveh. If you haven't already realised, Jonah is a proud, hard-hearted, small-minded, judgmental, vindictive, petty character. The last thing he wanted was for God to show compassion on Israel's enemies. In fact, he takes God's own description of himself and he throws it back as if it's an insult. He says, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. And then he admits that he ran away to Tarshish to prevent the Ninevites from receiving God's mercy. He's so angry that he wants to die. And God questions him. He says, should you really want to die because of this? Are you right to feel like that? Anyway, he goes to the edge of the city, he builds a shelter and he settles down to see what, what happens. And presumably he wants the Ninevites to mess this up somehow so that they get punished after all. And even though he's angry with God and his heart is clearly in the wrong place, God causes this huge plant to grow up and uh, provide him with shade. And Jonah is really happy with this. But in the morning at dawn, God sends a worm and it eats this plant in a matter of 
hours and it shrivels and dies and Jonah is once more at the mercy of the scorching heat of the day. And again, Jonah says, it would be better for me to die than to live. And God says, is it right for you to be angry about this? And Jonah says, it is. I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. And that's the last we hear from Jonah. And this is how the book ends. And it's worth reading the last two verses in full. It says, but the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? In other words, you've got so attached to this plant. Should I not be attached to the things that I've made, especially these people who have been made in my image and the animals too? Uh, we see in the book of Jonah a God who longs to show mercy, who longs to give a second chance, even to the Ninevites who are seemingly so far gone. But here's the crutch. We are Jonah. We are Jonah. That's how we're meant to read this. Uh, uh, the book of Jonah is like a mirror that reveals our hard heartedness and by contrast, God's love and compassion. So from this point, we're seeing ourselves in Jonah. Uh, Jonah refuses to obey God. Why? Well, essentially because he's unable to grow and change and to allow God's grace to surprise him. Uh, he knows that God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, but he's unable to accept that that love, that God's love, extends to other nations. I think very often we like to think that God feels the same way about our enemies as we do. He doesn't. You see, Jonah had a vision for his life and taking uh, God's love and grace to Israel's enemies didn't fit in with that vision. He was narrow minded, judgmental and proud. But what a vision God had for him. There were 120,000 godless, morally confused people who didn't know their right hand from their left, morally speaking. And God wanted to pour out his love and mercy upon them uh, so that their, their society might be completely transformed. Uh, that is what God was calling Jonah to, to be part of that. And Jonah didn't want to have a bar of it. Jonah didn't want to be the one responsible for taking God's love to Israel's enemies. And so he ran away. He ran away from God and he ran away for, from God's awesome plan for his life. Jonah wouldn't allow God to change him to the point where he was able to embrace God's plan for his life. I'm going to say that again. Jonah wouldn't allow God to change him to the point where he was able to embrace God's plan for his life. And that is so often true of us. For many years, I was on a boat bound for Tarshish, metaphorically speaking. I knew that obeying God would mean changing so many aspects of my life, my, my perspective, my plans, the things that I held dear. I mistakenly thought that following Jesus would be boring, that somehow I'd be missing out. And so I ran away from God. Looking back, I can see that the things that I was clinging on to were actually destroying my life. And God was calling me away from those things and into his life-giving plan. And that's how it was for Jonah. God was calling him to let go of his prejudice and hard-heartedness and embrace God's love and compassion. Jonah's field of view was very narrow. God sees the whole picture. What percentage of everything 
do you think you know? Of everything that could be known, how much of it do you know? What is our knowledge compared to God's? And so often we run away from God as if we know better, as if we've got a better plan. The arrogance of it. All of us are running away from God in some area of our lives. There may be someone here today who's running away from God in every area of their life, running away from God entirely. And if that's you, I would I would urge you to surrender your life to Jesus. But all of us are on that boat to Tarshish in some area of our lives. All of us need to soften our hearts in some way. Just think about what Jonah was running away from, the impact that he was meant to have. What might you be running away from? It's Father's Day. Is God calling you to be a more dedicated father? Will you allow God to soften your heart and to see that you've got your priorities wrong, that you need to devote more time to your children? Uh, that won't apply to everyone here. It might not apply to anyone here. But if the cap fits, where? Is, is God calling you to a marriage uh, that bears witness to his goodness and glory? Uh, do you need to soften your heart towards your wife or your husband in order to have that sort of marriage? Is God calling you to serve the poor and the destitute? Will you allow God to soften your heart to those who have nothing? Jonah was sent to a particular group of people. Who might God be sending you to? And judging from the book of Jonah, God might call us to bless people that we have no compulsion to bless whatsoever. You might think he, she, they are not really my kind of people. I don't want to spend a lot of time with them. I don't want to invest in that relationship. You might think, well, I find it very difficult to relate to that person. Maybe you're judgmental. You think, oh, their, their life's a mess. It's their own doing. There's no help in them. Maybe you've been hurt and you don't want the person who's hurt you to know the peace and love of Christ. How does God want to use us to bring his love and compassion to others? Going where God sends us. And doing what God calls us to will invariably require a change of heart. But if we run away, we'll, we're actually running away from life because the things that God calls us to are life-giving. Jonah didn't have a change of heart. He should have been overjoyed that, that God gave him a role in this event, uh, this amazing event of love and mercy and grace. But at the end of the book, he sat on a hillside wishing he were dead. It seems that Jonah remained hard-hearted towards the end, although it is left on a bit of a cliffhanger. We never really know uh, the, the, the final end of the book, how Jonah felt, whether he did in, indeed have a change of heart after all. Uh, everything about the book of Jonah is the opposite of what we'd expect. A delinquent prophet who rebels against God, a group of pagan sailors who cry out to God in their time of need and, and, and even seem to um, convert to, to, to the, the God of Israel, uh, an evil barbaric king who repents at the slightest provocation. It, it's all back to front. But then the gospel is the opposite of what we might expect, isn't it? An all-powerful God who becomes vulnerable, uh, born in poverty as a tiny human baby, an innocent man condemned to death, vile sinners who receive forgiveness and everlasting life, and a perfect God who uses fallen, broken people to represent him in the world. 
the question is, will we stop running away from God? Will we allow him to shape us and mould us and to, to change and soften our hearts so that we're able to represent God in the fullest and truest way possible? Bringing life to others, but also at the same time entering into the fullness of life that Jesus offers us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognise that so often we resist you, we run away from you. We know that you've got an amazing plan for our lives and so often we think that we know best. Forgive us, Lord, and help us to align ourselves with your will. Help us to take your words, to, to, to be a witness to those that you send us to. Help us, Lord, to be eager to do the things that you're asking of us. And to realise that that is where fullness of life lies. We can't find it anywhere else, only in you and in, in, in participating in this plan that you have for us. So we pray that you help us in this by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen.